Uh, first off, I want to, uh, I don't know if Jesse's in here, uh, but thank you for your prayer, brother. Uh, thank you for leading us in that prayer. Uh, I think that is just so encouraging to hear about Marin Smith and the whole theme of that prayer just reminding us of being reminded of really the theme of this text this morning of God's faithfulness. And uh, thank you for, for leading us in that prayer. If you would, open up your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. We're beginning a new sermon series throughout the book of Ruth. Our series theme that we're going to try to reiterate each week is expecting God's redemption when you least expect it. Uh, matter of fact, uh, Rachel Nguyen, my RUF intern, helped me make this, so please tell her thank you. It's awesome. It's way better than <laughs> anything else I could have even thought about. Um, so great. And uh, But it is. It is... The book of Ruth is an incredible book. Many of you maybe read it, maybe you've never laid your eyes on it, but the big theme of this book is expecting God's redemption when you least expect it. This morning we'll be reading chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons these took Moabite wives the name of the one was Orpah the name of the other Ruth they lived there about 10 years and both Malon and Killian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband this is the word of the Lord Let's pray. Heavenly Father, so far in this time of worshiping you, the worship that you have called us to participate in, we have been proclaiming your faithfulness. Yet we know, and as we see in this text, we are not faithful to you. Some of us need to be convinced of that. Some of us need to be rebuked for thinking otherwise. And yet some of us already know. And we need to be reminded that you are still the faithful one. Would you speak to us from your word? And may all of us, myself included, as we sit under the preaching of your word, may we delight in who you are for us in Christ. We ask all this in the name of Christ. Amen. One of my former teammates at Tulane is a professional chef now and when I was at the Cotton Bowl which by the way Tulane won uh, we're catching up with him and he's actually really cool one of the things he gets a chance to do uh, in March there's gonna be a TV show that he was able to go it's one of those cooking competitions he was able to be on there and so I was asking a bunch of these questions about how things are going what the cooking show was like and then we started talking about the restaurant industry 
And he was talking about how hard it is, uh, even, even especially post-COVID, about how hard it is to have a successful restaurant. Here's some, at least some stats, they might be even more updated by now, but uh, some stats say this, 25% of restaurants fail in the first year. 60% of restaurants fail in the first three years. It's a, it's a hard industry to be in. But here's one thing we know about ourselves. Is that except for Jesus Christ, 100% of people who have ever lived on this earth have failed in their faithfulness to God. And have failed from the very first moment of life. Whether you feel guilty or not is not the question because you might not feel guilty, but you are still guilty. Whether you feel guilty or not, we have not been faithful to him as we should be. But the question is this. Is God faithful to us because we are faithful to him? Is God faithful to us because we are faithful to him? If that were the case, how could we ever have hope? How could we ever expect redemption or blessings or even protection? But maybe you're not quite convinced of your faithlessness. So we need to first ask the question as we look at this text, are we faithful to God? Go back in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. Are we faithful to God? Maybe you say, well, faithful in doing what? Well, see, one of the things that God has done, actually, in all of world history we can also call it in redemptive history, is that there's been many moments leading up to this book of Ruth, to these real-life events. God has made covenants with his people. What is a covenant? A covenant, there's many definitions, but one of the most bare definitions is this, is that it is a relationship between two parties with obligations and promises. God has decided to enter into covenant with his people. Even before all eternity, even before any of creation happened, God, we see this in John chapter 6, John chapter 17, and Ephesians chapter 1, God the Father made a covenant with God the Son that he would save sinners. But then we see very quickly after mankind was created, very quickly after Adam was created, that God entered into covenant with Adam. God entered into covenant with Adam, a covenant called the covenant of works. And that covenant stated this, that life would be promised to Adam and to everyone who would come from Adam, if Adam obeyed. If there was perfect and personal obedience. You see, it's almost like, a tree where you have the roots and the fruit. If there are good roots, there will be good fruit. If there are bad roots, there will be bad fruit. So either Adam, as the head of all mankind, will either be good root and produce good fruit, or he will be a bad root and produce bad fruit. 
Well, we know from Genesis 3 that Adam did not obey the Lord. And he fell into disobedience and faithlessness. But nevertheless, even when God was pronouncing the curse in Genesis 3, he promised that there would be another Adam. Another Adam would come. And he who would also be a representative of all humanity who would run to him, he would be the perfect one. He would make things right. The same serpent that led the first Adam to sin, this second Adam would come and crush the serpent. On in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, we see God furthers this covenant of grace. And he does so with Noah. In Genesis chapter 6, God sees that all of humanity, every intention of their hearts, whether lived out or not, it was filled with sin. So God brings forth a flood. But by grace, he decides, decides to preserve one family. And after the flood subsides, after it goes down, God makes a covenant with Noah. And he says, I will never flood the earth again. And here's a sign unto you. There's going to be a rainbow in the sky. And whenever you see that rainbow, and even when you see all this sin in the world, that rainbow reminds you that even though sin deserves another flood, that flood will come down on someone else. Here's what's interesting about the rainbow. The rainbow is a bow. And notice, like a bow and arrow, when the arch is here, where is the bow pointing? It's pointing towards the heavens. So God is saying in that covenant with Noah that he would somehow absorb the flood of his own wrath. Again, as we move forward in the book of Genesis through real events in real history, we meet a man named Abraham. Before he was named Abraham, his name was Abram. God called him in Genesis 12 to leave his country and he promised to give Abram a land and a people and he promised that the seed of Abraham would be this snake crusher. God solidifies that covenant with Abraham in chapter 15 and when he solidifies that covenant with Abraham, he promises that by grace and grace alone he will fulfill it. Even in Genesis 17, God gives Abraham, another sign and seal of circumcision. And then we move on to Moses. 400-something years after the events of uh, the Israelites being in Egypt and being in slavery for 400 years, God decides to deliver his people. And then when he delivers his people, they enter into the wilderness and God enters into covenant with them. And what does he do? He gives them his Ten Commandments. Why am I telling you all this? Because this is the moment where the story of Ruth takes place. It is before God makes a covenant with David, but it's after God has made a covenant with Moses. And so you see that God had promised that he would bring a snake crusher and that he would somehow take care of the problem of sin and that he would do so by grace. And yet at the same time that this this Messiah who would come about, he would actually fulfill the law even though we break it. But the question is this, have we been faithful to these covenants? Are we faithful to God? 
Have we obeyed his law? There's actually a really funny video, if I can give some, uh, just a quaint illustration here. There's a video of uh, someone who has a pet duck named Adam, which is very ironic to me, considering what's going to happen. There's a person has a pet duck named Adam, and they're taking Adam for Adam's first swim, and as soon as they put Adam into the water, it just almost like running on water to get away from its master. Well, isn't that actually a very interesting picture of what we all do like Adam? We run away from our master. Look what happens in this text. There is a big theme in this text of death. That is how you see the evidence of our faithlessness to God. You see where it says, in the days when the judges ruled. This would have been post-Exodus, post-even Deuteronomy, and even when Joshua conquered the land, there was a time when the judges ruled. No, back, no, no, no doubt, as you just go back a page in your English Bible, you will see the book of Judges. That's the time period that is happening there. Do this. Turn back one page to the very last verse in the book of Genesis. This is what this time period was like for the book of Ruth. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And listen to this, because there was no king, because they had rejected God as king, here's what happened. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The book of Ruth does not take place in a time when everyone is super spiritual and revival is happening. The book of Ruth takes place in an age like us today of mass faithlessness and the death that is there. The, really, the theme here is that in the days of the judges, the theme was spiritual death. We know from what Paul says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. So whenever you see death, you know that sin is there. Sin is faithlessness to God. Spiritual death is there. You also see this, that there is land death. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Famine is obviously when the land does not do what it's supposed to do. Land that would normally bring forth life and fruit, it does not produce anything. Matter of fact, whenever a famine would come in the land, it would be a sign of God's covenant curse. Look at or not look at it, but let me read to you Deuteronomy 11, verse 17. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord has given you. See, God, because of their covenant unfaithfulness, because of them Mass, massively rebelling in sin, rejecting their God, God brings a famine. Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 shows that this is what God will do whenever his people are faithless. But even when there's a famine in the land, that gives Elimelech and his family no excuse to leave. Why? Because the land where they are 
is what God promised to give Abraham. For Elimelech and his family to step out of the land, to leave that land, it would mean to leave those people and to leave their God. So this is not just a, well, it makes sense. It's common sense. You need to go and find food. This is not that. God had given them that land, and he had promised that he would provide for them in that land. But Elimelech decides to leave. There's also individual death. You see this just with the man, Elimelech. Here's what's very interesting, and I'll get into more of the theme of names here later, but Elimelech's name means my God is king. How ironic. This, my friends, is what we call hypocrisy. Hypocrisy actually is a word that stems from a, it's a picture, it's actually, the word comes from an actor who would play a character who would be different from who he or she really is in real life. So, and just, just my wife, because laid eyes on her first, uh, if she is going to you know, play a part in a play, she's not most likely, unless someone wanted to do this, she's not going to play her own self. She is going to try to act like someone else. So for a while, she is going to try to be different than who she really is. That's what hypocrisy is. Hypocrisy is saying that you're a Christian, but you just live differently. You talk the talk, but you don't walk the walk. That's what Jesus tells the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. There's individual death. There's also corporate death. You see, no doubt that in that culture at that time, it was not just one man who was seen as being spiritually dead, but it was the culture. It was, it was widespread. It even went into Elimelech's family, and no doubt even broader than that, even as you read through the book of Judges. But let me give a side note here to this. This does remind us, for all the men in the room, this reminds us of the tall task of being a husband and father. Male headship is a biblical category, is a biblical doctrine, and it is a very tall task, brothers, because we can simultaneously lead in ways that will love our families, bless our families, sacrifice for our families, but we can simultaneously lead in ways that will destroy them. There's also physical death. You see in verse 3, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. You see also Malon and Killian, the sons, they died. We need to always remember this. Even when as Christians, when, when someone as a Christian dies, we know they're going to a better place. But we must always remember this. Funerals, they might be the norm, but they are not normal. Death is not something created by God. Death is the evidence of sin. So when someone physically dies, we are reminded that sin has affected them and it affects us. There's also marital death. You see that 
verse 4, that Malon and Killian, they took Moabite wives. Well, why is that, why is that a big deal? For, for these two men, for Malon and Killian, to marry Orpah and Ruth, it is not as if it were ethnically suspect, but it is ethically suspect. God's word does not forbid you from marrying someone who's of a different ethnicity. Whenever you see it talk about it in scripture, the emphasis is on who they worship. The emphasis is not on skin color or ethnicity or tribe and tongue, whatever it is. But rather it's this, it's the importance of marrying someone in the Lord. Because in Deuteronomy, it showed, Deuteronomy 7, 3 through 4, it prohibited marrying foreign women who still worshipped foreign gods. We know Rahab from the book of Joshua, she was not a, an Israelite, but she was brought into the covenant community. She would even be someone who Jesus would come from. So it's not the issue of ethnic, but of ethic. If I can say this to everyone in here who is desiring to get into a relationship who you date and who you marry matters and it better be more than just personality and riches or whatever else there's also womb death you see in the text it says at the end of verse 5 so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband it's implying that Naomi who was the matriarch of the family that she was left not only without her own two sons, but her sons, even when they married these foreign women, they were not able to give birth to other grandchildren. When it says, actually, that she was left, it implies that someone has, been, has gone through the fury and judgment of God. That's what this whole text is saying. It's just filled with faithlessness. See, culturally, this would have been terrible for Naomi because... The worst imaginable situation was to have no seed, to have no offspring. It would surely mean that your name would be forgotten, your name would be destroyed, and who would there be to look out for you? So what you see here is this. What, what this scripture is showing us is that it's not a pretty picture. There's death. But there's also a big theme in this text we need to see, not only with death, but with names. I mentioned how Elimelech, his name is my God, is king. But let's even go all the way back to verse 1. It says there was a man of Bethlehem. What does that mean? Bethlehem means house of bread. Isn't that very ironic? There's no bread in the house of bread. Judah means this. I will now praise God. But there's no praising God. Moab is a land that was formed out of, you remember Lot from Genesis? Lot had an incestuous relationship, and those people would form the nation of Moab. Even after that had happened, not, not too many years before this, we read about in Numbers 22 to 24 how King Balak of Moab, he sent the prophet Balaam to try to curse Israel. The women of Moab were a stumbling block to the people of Israel. And even in the book of Judges, we see very recently to this that King Eglon of Moab was just oppressing Israel. Why would you go to Moab? Why would a godly family 
want to go there. Yes, brothers and sisters, we are to be in the world, but we are not to be of the world. We must remember that even when a decision in itself might not be simple, it can be very much unwise and lead to sin. I remember one guy in seminary preaching lab, he gave this phenomenal illustration. He said this, sin is like antifreeze. Antifreeze has a sweetener in it. Don't ask how this guy knew. But sin has, I mean, uh, an, sin, <laughs> antifreeze has a sweetener in it. And when antifreeze goes down, it can taste sweet, but it burns you up from within. It destroys you from within. Sin is like that. It appears sweet, but it will destroy you from within. You see, the people of Moab, they worship a god named Kamash. Kamash was known as a destroyer. How does that sound for fun? You see, when Elimelech takes his family to go into Moab, he's going into the land of Kamash, and that's exactly the picture of what sin does to us. It destroys us. Your idols, anything you replace God with, it will destroy you. When Elimelech goes to Moab, you, you have to imagine that as he gets there, he might be thinking something like this. Yeah, this is better. We often do that with sin, don't we? We give in to it once, and we get a certain happiness and satisfaction from it, and we harden our hearts, and we, we look at that sin, and we say, yeah, this is better than God's ways. When it says that they lived in the land that they, you see that at the end of verse 4, it says they lived there about 10 years you even see at the end of verse 2, it says they remained there. That word for remain means this. It means to make something your home. Do you make your bed with sin? Do you make your sinful lifestyle your home? I remember our team chaplain when I was at Tulane, a guy named Corey Olivier. He's a BCM pastor down in New Orleans still at Tulane. And I remember... We would often pepper him with questions of like, well, you know, well, what about this? Or, well, what about this? Can I do this? This isn't that bad. And he said this. You're asking the wrong question if you say, is this sin or can I do this? The real question is, is it wise? Because it is often our unwise decisions, as mentioned earlier, it's often our unwise decisions that lead us into a sinful lifestyle. Elimelech would have thought about his decision he would have discussed it with people then he would have decided then he would have planned for it and then he would have acted on it you know Rome was not built in a day but also neither was the Tower of Babel you don't immediately become a murderer or an adulterer you just take one thought at a time that's why we must always be watchful Elimelech means my God is king. It does certainly remind us that we often forget what the name Christian means. You see, let me ask you some questions. Do you act one way in church but another way at home with your spouse or with your parents or with your siblings? 
Do you act one way in church, but then another way at work? Do you act one way in church, but then another way in school, or, or even this, or online? You see, not all faithlessness is as public as Elimelech's. Sometimes, sometimes they are, and they're, and they're clearly seen. But sometimes they're not. Sometimes it happens in these ways. Sometimes it happens even when we don't necessarily change our outward actions. We just kind of keep doing the same things because it's just not that bad. But we don't give God what he deserves. Sometimes it happens when we entertain sin in our thought life just a little more and a little more. With lust, bitterness, hatred, revenge. Sometimes our faithlessness happens in secret. Pornography, affairs, theft, covetousness on Amazon, cheating in school. Sometimes it happens by simply becoming more worldly. We just, we just start indulging in more just outwardly worldly entertainment and social media and literature and even friends. Sometimes it happens by slowly but surely pulling away from the church. You stop prioritizing worship or godly accountability or Christian friendship or even knowing more about who your God is or partaking in the sacraments. But sometimes it also happens by just simply not doing what you should do. You're not necessarily awful to your spouse, but you don't actively pursue to love them. You're not necessarily awful to your kids, but you're not actively pursuing to love them. You're not actively pursuing to show mercy to other people or to pray or even to, to give. We are often like a Elimelech, are we not? Naomi is also an interesting name. We'll see more of this next week, but Naomi's name means pleasant or lovable, but very soon she will call herself Mara, which means bitter. Malon, here's what's interesting. Malon's name is sick. Killian's name is to be finished. Isn't that very interesting? The fruit of Elimelech is sick, and it's about to be finished. Ephratha, which is so interesting, which is the it says they were Ephrathites. Ephratha means fruitful, but there's not much fruitfulness going on in those days. And Orpah, her name means neck, meaning that she turned her neck against her mother-in-law. Here would be a literal reading of this text. In the days when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, there was death in the land and a man of the house of bread in the land of, now I will praise the Lord, he left that land and went to it the place of incest, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was, my God is king, and the name of his wife is lovable. And the names of his two sons were sick and about to be finished. They were fruitful people from the house of bread in the land of, I will praise the Lord. They went into the country of incest and remained there but the man by the name of my God is king, the husband of fruitful, died. And she was left without her, her name yet, because it's a spoiler. They lived there about 10 years, 
And then both sick and about to be finished died so that lovable was left without her two sons and her husband. Do you not hear the irony? We've been watching the Lego movie a lot recently. Say so all my younger kids, please listen to this. Or adults who just love the movie. Let's be honest. Well, the most popular song in that movie is a song called Everything is Awesome. And it just says that over and over and over again. And here's what's interesting. As the, as the people are singing, everything is awesome. They're blinded to the fact that things are not. They're numb to the fact that things are terrible. And they're ruled by an evil master. My friends, we often do the same things. We are often indulging in our own sin, whether secret or public, and we say, everything's awesome. But is everything awesome today? We see spiritual death today. We see it especially when the message of today is follow your own heart. And that's often evidence in these ways. We just choose our own pronouns, but that's never going to satisfy us. We choose who we're attracted to. We choose what we want to do with our own bodies. We choose to redefine marriage. Or maybe you're not necessarily living that way, but you're just dead in your relationship with the Lord. You're full of self-righteousness. You might have outward behavior, but you don't have a heart for Him. But we also see creation death today, don't we? The winter storm that came through in December killed 60 people. That's not supposed to happen. The recent drought that we've actually had up here has given farmers a tough time to grow crops. Even very recently, there's been flooding in California that's killed 17 people. We see individual death. We often see it just by noticing how unsatisfied we are by pursuing this lifestyle. Maybe you've been doing it for years, and maybe that's your midlife crisis where you finally look up and you say, wow, this has not fulfilled me. We also see individual death when our conscience tells us that we actually are guilty. We're guilty because of the things we've thought. We're guilty because of the things we've seen, because of the things we've touched, because of the things we've felt, because of the things we've tasted, because of the things we've said, and because of the things we've desired. We also see death corporately. Guys, it's no surprise that there's more hatred and division now than there's been in many recent years. There's more suspicion and name-calling. We see fathers on a massive scale who are abandoning their children. We see public scandals, murder, theft. But even in smaller ways, we also see this. We see plenty of gossip to go around. We see generational bitterness. We see gospel churches that are now in decline. And we see churches on the whole scale abandoning biblical ethics. There's also physical death. Even recently, you saw what happened with the Buffalo Bills player, Damar Hamlin, when he almost died on the field. That is not supposed to happen. I had a teammate when we came up and played at Tulsa, uh, I believe it was 2012, I had a teammate who right before halftime was paralyzed from the neck down. That's not supposed to happen. Even not too long ago, there was a fatal crash over there on 6th and Country Club. There's marital death. There's been affairs. There's been divorce. 
There's been long-standing bitterness. There's been finger-pointing. There's just been a lack of love. There's been selfishness. There's even been abuse. And we know that there's also been womb death. We do see, unfortunately, miscarriages, abortion, and infertility. Is everything awesome? Clearly not. We live in a world that is affected by sin. There is the bad root, and it's produced bad fruit. The fall brings fallout. Original sin that is within leads to actual sin, and we need to be reminded of Nathan the prophet when he went to David after David had committed adultery, when Nathan tells him, you are the man. My friends, never get in this habit. Never get in the habit of whenever you hear God's word proclaimed that you say, oh, I really wish so-and-so was here because they really need to have this conviction. You're the man. You're the woman. Are we faithful to God? No. We're not. We think that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but we forget that Vegas comes home with us. We need to be reminded of Numbers 32, 23, when it says, be sure that your sin will find you out. Isn't this good news? Just, this is what you came to church for, right? But it is true. Romans 3 says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So back to our original question. Is God faithful to us because we are faithful to him? He can't be. Before I move on to our concluding point, let me remind you of something. What is this whole thing happening here? What is preaching? Is it a TED talk? Is it a you know, Costco sample where you can take it or leave it? Is it social media where you can just follow whoever you want and unfollow whoever else? No, rather it's more like this. It's kind of like whenever daycare will send out an email saying, hey, school is canceled today because there's snow. The reality of the fact is that daycare is canceled, so if you take your kids up there, well, door's going to be locked. The reality is that it's closed, whether you ignore it or not. What is preaching? Preaching is when God's ambassadors proclaim God's message to God's people and to everyone who sits here, you cannot take it or leave it. You must respond to it. It is what we call this. It is a covenantal moment. Every single person in here must respond to this message. But so far, I've only given you one option, right? Is there another way? What's amazing is that there's a verse that Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.13 that says this. If we are faithless, which by the way is true, he remains faithful. 
Amen? If we are faithless, he remains faithful. No matter how long you run away from him, no matter how much sin you've indulged in, no matter how many times you've fallen back into that sin that you swore you would not do again, no matter how many doubts you've had of him and his promises, no matter how much it might seem like he's abandoned you, he remains faithful. God is not a God just of creation. God is a God of re-creation or new creation. He is always the God who can bring something out of nothing. But yet we often live like the Russian astronaut Yuri Gagarin who went up into space and just looked at the stars and the moon, planets, everything else, but he said he didn't see God, so God must not be real. <laughs> but that's how we live. We might look at all the death in this land, and we might say, well, God must not be there. He must not be working in my life. He must not be working in my family's life, because there's no evidence. My friends, this entire book is about to show how God can bring something out of nothing. Amen? When it is most dark, the dawn is about to appear. What does Ruth's name mean? Friend. It also means this, refreshing, like irrigation. Isn't that amazing? Don't you see, if you just look a little bit longer at the text, the grace of God there? In a land where there is no bread, there is a famine, there is someone who, by the way, is also a foreigner and was also an idolater. But God's going to do such a work in her life where she will be refreshing. God gives refreshing grace despite sin. You see, Jesus Christ is the ultimate and better Ruth. Ruth is merely a picture. She is awesome and she is amazing and we're going to learn so, so much from her but it's pointing far more to Jesus. Because Jesus did not wait until we got our act together, but rather he came to us. He came to us when we were spiritually dead so that he could make us alive. Jesus is actually the true Elimelech who always lived like the father was his king. And that righteousness he gives you. Jesus declares himself to be the bread of life even when there's a spiritual famine. Jesus is actually the true Ruth, the true friend, even amidst a world of Orpahs who just rebel and turn away and are faithless. And on the cross, Jesus, when he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was treated like he was the ultimate faithless one. So that we might be treated as if we were the ultimate faithful one. Amen? The covenant moment that you have here is this. Brothers and sisters, you have two options. Either trust Jesus or try to do it yourself. It's not this, either be better or just keep living the way. It's not that. Trust Jesus. Or do it yourself. Because this God, as you will see all throughout the book of Ruth, you will see redemption upon redemption upon redemption. And when you least expect it, you will learn to expect God's redemption, even in the worst moments. What are you facing right now? 
What death do you see in your life that you think maybe there's no way God can redeem me from this? Open your eyes. Stay with us for the next couple weeks. Because you will see a God who is untamable and who in Jesus Christ will redeem every aspect of your life. Believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Our Father, we're asking that in this time you would you would bind us to him, him who is life. And even as we are about to partake in his supper, that now we will move into the moment where we would not just, not just hear about him being the bread of life, but that we would, t- we would taste and see that he is the bread of life. Holy Spirit, only you can do this work. And so we ask all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.